Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. So many countdown clocks on the TVs right now. CNN, countdown to Iowa. Nothing more exciting than a bunch of people sitting around a room in Iowa. We are two hours, 50 minutes, and 46 uh, 46 seconds away from Vern and Earl and Betty and Wendy sitting around in a church basement. It's going to be amazing. Amazing. Caroline Cummings from WCCO-TV is down in Iowa. She was a reporter in Iowa. She and I have been exchanging uh, some funny stories about both of our time covering the caucuses in Iowa because I covered it in 2000. And in 2000, I think Caroline Cummings was probably four. (laughs) So we'll, uh, we'll check in with Caroline down in Iowa. The countdown clock for that interview is set at 25 minutes away. So we'll talk to Caroline soon. Uh, But first it is a time for our segment that features Dan cook. We call it the Monday message. That's not me playing the organ, by the way. Just It's me, actually. Was it really? I don't think I can actually lie on the introduction to the Monday <laughs> message. I'm pretty sure you just did. I just get struck right down, right down. Dan, the message, uh, and for people who don't know, you are a part-time pastor yes. at a local church. Yes. And you are, you know, you got your... Preaching master's in divinity. I a master's in divinity from, from Bethel Seminary. Mail order. Oh, not from mail. Bethel. No, not mail order. From an actual be- from Bethel Seminary. Right. Yeah, from Bethel Seminary. And this weekend, you talked about uh, sensing the call. Right. So this. So yesterday, I got to preach uh, on a passage from First Samuel, uh, chapter three, which and I'll give you the thumbnail version of it for those folks who aren't super familiar. Samuel is the last in the line of judges and the person who's going to be anointing. Uh, Saul as the first king of Israel and David to replace Saul. So he sort of represents this pivot point, a very important pivot point in the history of, of God's people. And the story in chapter 3 is about him first hearing God's call in his life. He's been training under a priest uh, named Eli, but he hadn't really heard God's call yet. In, that, in fact, the very, one of the very first verses in the chapter says that the word of God was rare in those days. God, it was rare for people to hear from God at that point. In fact, it's so rare that when he first hears it, he doesn't know what it is. He thinks it's Eli calling to him. They're sleeping at night, and this voice comes and, and calls his name Samuel. He thinks it's Eli. He goes to Eli. Eli says, no, I didn't call for you. Go back to bed. You're, you're dreaming. And they do that three different times before Eli finally realizes that what must be happening is God calling Samuel. And so he tells Samuel, here's how to reply. Stand up and say, you know, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Samuel then hears a message, and it's a tough message, which we'll talk about here in just a second. Uh, that he has to then decide what is he going to do with this message. And I think a lot of us at various points in our lives find some sort of calling on whether you're a person of faith or not, you, you will find a calling on your life. It could be vocational, it could be career, and those are actually two very separate things. It could be something to do with your family, it could be something to do with just your life and direction in general. Whatever it is, we face strong callings, and the, and the 
first thing we have to do is discern what this calling is. Or, you know, is this something I'm supposed to be doing or is this something maybe I just want to do? I heard a speaker one time saying that when God puts a call on your life, if it's something that you know, you're like, oh, this is something I've been contemplating and I really want to do and I'm all excited for it, that's not actually your calling. Huh. But your calling almost always begins with something that's going to scare you to the point of saying, oh, man, I can't do that. Interesting. That's, you know, more. So you're not creating right. it in your mind. Self-generated. And in fact, the truth of the matter is that when you're discerning whether this is a call or not in your life, it really isn't something we need to or should be doing on our own. This is why you have people in your life. This is why you develop community, whether that's family or friends or mentors or a faith community, whatever it is, you need to have those two or three people in your life that you can go to and say, here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm sensing. Here's what's going on. I don't know. Should, is this something I should be doing? Is this something I should be investigating? What should I do? You need to have those people in your life. Not that they ultimately make the decision for you, but they're going to give you feedback. We are designed as a species to be in community with each other. We are designed as people who are supposed to be able to lean upon one another. And you need to have those folks in your life. And between that sensing of that fear and that, that discernment that you can do with other people, you generally start to get a pretty good feel for, is this something I'm supposed to be doing or not? Once you do that, then it often takes a sense of courage to do it. Now, Samuel, the call that he receives is to then turn and tell his mentor, Eli, that his sons, who are a couple of ding-dongs who have been screwing around and not paying attention and not doing what they're supposed to be doing, are not going to inherit his priesthood. In fact, his priesthood's going to be at an end. Now, if you're Samuel, this is your mentor. This is the closest thing to the father figure you've ever had. That's got to freak you out to say that I've got to turn around and speak this truth to this person that I care to about. your mentor. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's a terribly difficult thing to do. And it requires courage. And that's another way you can sort of sense what something, what kind of call something is. If it's something that requires a certain amount of courage for you to respond to, yeah, that's probably means something. That's probably a pretty important sign. But that courage can come from another, a number of different places, right? It can come from that same friend, family and friend group, your faith community, whatever it is. It can come from just having peers around you saying, yeah, you don't have to go through this by yourself. But to those of us that maybe lack that, that group or maybe struggle to trust in, in certain folks in that regard, it can also come from God. If you think about the very nature of God, 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. And not just love, but the word that John uses for love there means a self-sacrificial, other-oriented, faithful kind of love. The kind of love that affirms us, the kind of love that supports us, the kind of love that says, I know this is hard. I know this is something maybe you don't necessarily want to do. But trust me, I will be with you through it all, and you're going to be better on the other side of this. Life is going to be better on the other side of this if you go through with this. And so those are just some things that we were talking about yesterday in terms of the sermon about, you know, these kind of calls are hard. And it's because sometimes it's big life things and sometimes it's, it's smaller things. But we're meant to do this together. We're meant to do this as community. We're meant to be supporting one another. And so at the end of the message, I was just asking the congregation, can you... Can I be somebody who you lean on? Mm. Can you be somebody who I lean on? Can together we lean on each other and figure out what these calls are for us individually and then for us as a community? Because it comes both ways. There are calls on individuals and there are calls on community. And for too long, in my opinion, uh, the church hasn't lived up to its calling of being something that reflects back towards people and institutions of power and saying, no, you're abusing this. You're doing this wrong. Instead, we've sought power to dominate over other people, and that's not the church's calling, in my opinion. Dan, it's interesting because I I was thinking about this today in the context of Martin Luther King Day, right? Because Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was also 
you know, when you study the history of this time of the 50s and 60s, one of the, m- the most interesting things about Dr. King uh, and that time was the debate inside black churches as to whether or not it was an appropriate role of the church to take on this, the the calling that Dr. King felt, which was to to fight against uh, really the main institutions in America at that time and to really radically get involved in in yeah. civil rights. Well, and, and more and than, you see that debate playing out today as you, well you in a different different ways, but it's a similar discussion. It's a similar discussion. Not only was that being played out in white church or in black churches, but also in white churches. If you read his letter from a Birmingham jail, that's in response mainly to white churches saying, I support the cause that you're trying to advocate for, but the way that you're doing it uh, is only going to make people mad and it's only going to cause more violence. And that's something we hear all the time these days when there's direct action, right? When there's nonviolent protests. It's, well, I agree with the cause, but the way that you're doing it. And he goes point by point in this beautifully crafted letter. I know the canon is closed. I said this yesterday too. I know the canon is closed. But if you read letter from a Birmingham jail, man, it reads like an mm. epistle. I mean, it really does. Because it's very convicting to folks that would be tempted to say, yeah, I agree with the cause, but I just don't like how we're going about doing it. Not that everybody that goes about you know, active, act, uh, acting out causes does it perfectly. There's always shortcomings there. Yeah. But you, from a comfortable position to say, oh, no, don't disrupt things too much in action for a cause, a cause that's trying to improve justice and trying to increase freedom, that's a problem. Yeah. That's a problem. And it's absolutely the role of the church to speak truth to power and say, no, you're treating this particular group of people uh, without justice and without freedom, and that's wrong. That's, that's not the very charter under which this nation was created. That's the role of the church. Well, what do you say to people who are people of faith yes. who feel like they've never been called? No. The no. call never came. Am I a failure? Is there something wrong with me? Why haven't I heard a call? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Uh, no, first and foremost, you're not a failure. You're not a failure. And again, I point back to the story of First Samuel uh, where it took him you know, three tries. And maybe it's not three. Maybe it's more. Maybe it's less, whatever it is. But it took a series of tries for Samuel to even recognize that there was a call coming. So before you can even worry about what you're actually going to do with the call, you have to actually recognize what the call is. And not all of us are in positions where we're able to recognize that call whether it's spiritually, whether it's whatever else is going on in our lives. Maybe we're distracted. Maybe we've got other crises that we're trying to deal with. So, no, you're not a failure if you don't feel like you've heard that call yet. But, again, that's why I encourage people so strongly to form these kinds of relationships, these kind of close community-type relationships, uh, because there will be things that maybe you don't know if, if it's a call or not. And that's why you've got to be able to go to these people and say, okay, is this what's going on? Is this something that I'm supposed to be paying attention to or not? Because – you know, there's all kinds of things that will come at us on a day. We're drinking from a, a fire hose every day of yeah. inputs yeah. and stuff, and it's easy to miss things. Uh, and so as much of that as we can f- clear out with help from other people, the easier it's going to be to recognize calls. And then we have to decide if we're ready to respond to a call. I look back, I didn't come to faith until I was in my mid-30s. And there's plenty of times, I think, earlier in my life, God was checking in with me, asking me if it was, I was ready for a relationship yet. I didn't know what, really what was going on at the time. I look back now, and I clearly can understand what was going on, but I wasn't ready yet. And so it took a few tries before I got to a point where I was ready to hear yeah. that, and it completely changed my life once I was. It's really good, really interesting. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Dan Cook with the Monday message here on CCO. Enjoyed it? Have thoughts? Have you ever felt a call? Have you changed your life in one direction or not? Love to hear from you. Uh, text 
calls, 651-461-9226. Or you can email email us anytime. You can reach Dan by emailing Jason at W... uh, No. I I was doing so well. Odyssey. A-U-D-A-C-Y. Jason at Odyssey.com. It is 421. Back in just a minute here on CCO. Lots of great text in response to Dan's Monday message. We really appreciate it. Love the Monday message. Keep doing it. Yes, calls are scary, but amazing when you listen. Really nice. Uh, One texter said the Martin Luther King Jr. Day celebration they were at referenced that same verse from Samuel that Dan highlighted. So very nice. We appreciate all those texts. Uh, Dan often is going to take inspiration from whatever he preaches about at church, but sometimes it might be something else. So if you have something that you want us to talk about or a question that you struggle with, love to hear it at uh, Jason at odyssey.com. So right now they are playing football in Buffalo. I have been to that stadium in Buffalo. It's amazing. But this experience today in Buffalo, New York, where the fans were out there shoveling. Like right up to game time. I mean, right now, right now in Buffalo, what what is it? It's like, I mean, it's not that cold. <laughs> I think it's like 20 degrees. Say it's not warm. It's not warm. Right now it is uh, 15 degrees in Buffalo, 13 mile an hour wind. So that's pretty rough. Yeah, that's not good. Especially when you're just and the sun's coming down, right? You're sitting and you're not being able, you're not able to move around and get the blood flowing at all. I mean, you're just sitting. So there. that's the thing. Like, how much snow did they get in Buffalo? I mean, it's just it's unreal. Well, did you? They've see- got more than three feet of snow in some parts of of the Buffalo area. I saw a picture yesterday. I forget if it was on Twitter or where, but it said, you know, here's the view of that stadium at game time. What was originally scheduled as game time yesterday. And it was just a complete, I mean, you couldn't tell where the stadium ended and the field began. It was just a complete whitewash of snow. So that they've cleared this much is remarkable. But we saw on the first uh, touchdown drive by Buffalo, uh, there's still plenty of snow out there because here came all these poofs of snow up from the crowd as people are reaching down, grabbing handfuls and throwing them up in the air in celebration. So They had volunteers shuffling, uh, shoveling overnight. I mean, they might have shuffled and all day. <laughs> shoveling all night and all day today. They uh, they did pay them twenty bucks an hour. Two hundred shovelers. Uh, zero chance I would do that. Yeah, absolutely not. Like how? Even the most hardcore fan would you go and shovel your team stadium? Now twenty bucks an hour. I mean. Legally, they probably have to pay you. I don't know. I would think, yeah. Right? So I don't think they're doing that out of, like, because they just want to support the people. I'm sure legally you you can't just have volunteers do your work, but no chance. No. No. Unless the, I mean, unless the compensation was just otherworldly. What's the number? Season tickets for next year. $30 an hour with season tickets. For next year, we, we that's what the number is. I'm I just remember, uh, fans now of our lineup, all our WCCO radio lineup. You got Henry, mm. you got me, you got Chad, Adam, Jordana, Benita. Oh, <laughs> yeah, Wh- who's shoveling? I mean, the answer is 
very patently obvious, isn't it? <laughs> Texton, who do you think is most likely? I will give you the correct answer during our weather and traffic okay. forecast, but text in with who is most likely to shovel on the CCO line. Now, I'm not talking about shoveling BS. That's well, a different answer. That's noon to three. That is clearly noon to three. Yeah. 651-461-9226. We'll visit with Caroline Cummings live in Iowa, two and a half hours away from the start of the Iowa caucuses here on CCO. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Well, the cold weather and the snow is no problem for the Buffalo Bills. They're up 21 to nothing in their wildcard game that was rescheduled. The governor of New York, in fact, stepping up to reschedule that. No such action being taken in Iowa, where the coldest caucus in Iowa history is about to get underway. Caroline Cummings from WCCO-TV, the chief political reporter over at Channel 4, was a reporter in Iowa before she came up here. Uh, to Minneapolis, and she joins us back in her old stomping grounds on the John Schuster Coldwell Banker Hotline. Hey, Caroline, it's good to talk to you. Hey, Jason, good to be here. I'm coming to you from uh, a quiet place off of the media center where uh, there's like over a thousand reporters uh, from across the world who are here to to cover this uh, thing as Iowa kicks it all off uh, here with its caucuses. This is a very strange caucus compared to 2020. We didn't quite know what was going to, you know, what was going to happen when Democrats decided that they were not going to uh, get started in Iowa. Uh, Tell us kind of what is the vibe down there when you've got really all of the focus on Republicans. Right. So it is a different caucus from 2020. That cycle was, like you said, a Democrat year. Um, This was before, of course, uh, the caucus results meltdown, and that helped fuel uh, the fire uh, for the DNC to basically boot Iowa's first in the nation status on the Democrat side of things. But one of the things that I've noticed that is really different is just that it was it was kind of anybody's game at that point. Uh, Nobody knew who was going to come on top of the 2020 caucuses, uh, of course, with the results being what they were. I know the Associated Press formally didn't even call it, but it was neck and neck until the end. Here, it's like the race for second place because Trump's presence looms so large. It has uh, stayed that way much of this race. The polls have moved slightly, but really only for those candidates who are uh, taking on Trump for the Republican nomination. Um, But Trump has really steadily held a double-digit lead. So what I'm looking for tonight is, you know, um, a a good chance that he wins. um, And the question is, by how much? Um, And uh, maybe the weather is the surprise, because that's kind of the conventional wisdom, right, is that Iowa always has a little element of surprise with its caucus. But so far, it hasn't been all that surprising, really, which has been interesting to watch. Caroline Cummings is with us from WCCO-TV. She is in Des Moines where the temperature is zero degrees right now. Uh, will that affect caucus turnout? You, you never know. 
you never know. And you never know if the polls on caucus, uh, you know, will line up to the reality. So that's that's certainly certainly something you've seen in the past. Polls are, you know, everyone loves to villainize the polls right now, Uh, although they've been fairly consistent with, you know, Trump with just an enormous, enormous lead. Yeah. Yeah. And Trump is this is important to keep in mind for for Iowa Republicans. We're the ones who are showing up to caucus. One context is everything here. Uh, Not every Iowa Republican caucuses to begin with. In 2016, about a third of registered Republicans participated in the caucus. So if we're talking about this extraordinary weather factor, will that depress the turnout uh, even further? That's that's the question. But um, this is a state that voted twice for uh, President Barack Obama and then swung so hard in the other direction for Trump. And ever since he won in 2016 um, in the general election, because, of course, uh, Ted Cruz won the Iowa caucuses, um, his support has only grown. Republicans' power in this state has grown. So this really is, um, you know, a place where Republicans truly align with uh, President Trump um, for the most part in, in, in larger numbers than, say, New Hampshire, uh, which has its primary. And that's looking to be a closer race between the, you know, subsequent uh candidates there the other candidates now caroline you uh covered the 2020 iowa caucuses i covered the yes. 2000 iowa caucuses i was trying to think like how you're old... really dating yourself here well yourself i was trying to think like how how old was caroline in 2000 oh, i was i was five years old in 2000 <laughs> five five whole years old on earth yes i didn't know what a caucus was so yeah. it was just Hanging out with some Barbie dolls, I think, at that era. Al, Al Gore and Bill Bradley and George W. Bush, and none of that uh, meant a dang thing to you in uh, 2000 when I was down there covering that. <laughs> but it is, you know, one thing that used to be true, and I'm curious for your perspective, is you used to have candidates going all over Iowa. They, I worked at KWQC in Davenport, Iowa. We would have a year before the caucus, you'd have like cabinet secretaries and U.S. senators alone coming to our front door and they would send the the youngest, dumbest reporter out to politely tell them that we're not doing a story on them yet. Uh, but the candidates used to really focus on Iowa issues. They would talk about agriculture. They would talk about farming. And my sense is that as the caucus, as the rest of the country has become more focused on national issues, the economy, immigration, uh, those those issues, you know, culture war, all of these national issues. Is the same true in Iowa? Is this more about the same issues that are playing out around the country? I think so. Uh, you know, that that is a really good insight there, Jason, because the, the campaigns have increasingly become nationalized. Uh, I know some some polling here in Iowa, not to, to go back to the polls, but they are giving a good glimpse of kind of where people are at. And then also that's kind of colored by interviews you have with voters here, like illegal immigration and, and the, the, the by, uh, you know, border crisis is a, is a big issue for voters here in Iowa. Obviously, Iowa is not a border state. The economy, like you said, also a big issue. Um, but there is still the kind of conventional Iowa way where Ron DeSantis is a perfect example of somebody who's really leaning into the traditional way of retail politicking in the state. He's done what's called a 
full Grassley. That is um, a nod to uh, U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, who every year visits every single one of Iowa's 99 counties. And uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has done so, uh, and he is really focusing on his ground game here. So it will be remain to be seen if that pays off for him. Uh, but you are correct that the kind of retail politicking ground game, um, you know, for somebody like President Trump, who is such a, a known figure, who has such a presence, it hasn't um, been as as needed for somebody right. like him, who has such name ID um, and such support here in Iowa. That's not to say that he hasn't been here. He certainly has. Uh, but, you know, the the I think it's only DeSantis who has done the the full Grassley, which used to be kind of the rite of passage to to find success in Iowa, to, to go visit every corner of the state and shake the hands and, and take the photos and go to the, you know, small venues and the small coffee shops, mom and pop places to really just have that face time with, with Iowans. Caroline Cummings from WCCO-TV with us. I suppose the biggest thing, Caroline, is that this is, you know, for n- nerds like us, we've been paying attention to the politics and the presidential race since it started, for a lot of people, tonight might be sort of your first check-in to see what's going on. Yeah, yeah, you are exactly right. Uh, I think it's easy for uh, the press, especially the political press, or those who are really uh, super passionate about this, which I certainly am since I've chosen right, of course. as yes. a career, uh, that I've been following it, you know, very closely, even not being here anymore, uh, you know, keeping tabs on the campaign reporters who have been embedded here but you are correct that I think we need to have some kind of, you know, head check on where does the average American stand? And they really might be just tuning in for the first time uh, to know, you know, what is a caucus? Why, why does Iowa go first? Those sorts of things and really starting to pay attention now. And there's probably still, let's be real, plenty of people who aren't paying attention yeah, yet. Sure. They might not until, until uh, the, the primary gets to them for the, for the presidential uh, primary or even when it gets close to like a general election matchup. So um, I definitely think people are tuning in for the first time tonight, if they're tuning in at all. Favorite moment for you from your days as a young cub reporter in Iowa covering the caucus last time around? Gosh, there's so many, um, but I think one that sticks out to me that really just kind of captures the, you know, like the stereotypical Iowa moment is, well, I guess I have two, but this is the first one, is I went to a Pete Buttigieg event. This was in the summer before the caucuses, so summer 2019, and there was a woman who got up and said uh, before her question, you know, this is my like fourth time seeing you and you, you know, you just keep getting better. And I just thought like <laughs> it's, it's something that still resonated with yeah. me because, you know, it, it, Iowans, if you're really engaged in this process and you, and you really care about it and, and Iowans tend to, to wear, you know, the first in the nation status as a badge of honor, that they will go to multiple events. I mean, they will have that kind of access. And so to, to, to witness that was really special um, also, uh, I interviewed uh, then candidate Joe Biden um, solo one time. Normally, I did have the assist of a, a photojournalist, but it was my first TV market job. And I was just like, well, I'm not going to, if nobody's available, I'm going to do it myself. And um, 
it was in like a cafeteria at Simpson College and I'm like interviewing a former vice president who wants to be president. And I had interviewed him previously at that at that point. I'd actually interviewed him three times um, and I'd interviewed like every one of the major candidates. So for me, just being able to be on the front lines, like first draft of history as somebody who was 24 at the time, never in my wildest dreams yeah. did I ever think yeah. I would get to do that. So I was grateful uh, beyond measure. And I still am for all of my time in Iowa. Hey, I met my uh, fiance in Iowa. That's so right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, yes. That's really yes. good. Very good. I got, I, I was telling you this earlier today in 2000, when I was down there, the candidates often will only do local news interviews. They won't interview with the NBC reporters or whatever. That may, that has changed a bit today. But back then, that it was pretty common that they would only do interviews with the, the Iowa right. reporters. They, they still, they still uh, played a, or they still paid serious mind to the local reporters. I mean, I was that local reporter, yeah. and I yeah. did get to interview all of them. And and um, you know, I I think that that is a, a, a cool place to be when Great you're fun. you know a yeah. young and hungry scrappy reporter to to get that sort of access because. Um, you know, that access is mirrors what these Iowans get and being right. able to have that face right. time with their candidates. Um, but you are correct that there are, you know, it's not not reserved only for local. <laughs> exactly. Press, but yeah. they do they do still see the value in Good. in, you know, talking to the local reporters. Caroline will be watching tonight at uh, 10. You, you get bumped by this uh, playoff football game in the afternoon right now, but. You know, buff, Buffalo. Yes, I will be live at 10 on WCCO from from Des Moines with an update on where things stand. Hopefully we'll have uh, results by then. You know, of course, last time with the, the Democratic side of things, we didn't have results for <laughs> yeah. days. Yes. So I'm, I'm hoping I'm hoping for turning a new leaf this go around. Very good. Thanks, Caroline. Appreciate it. 450. I'll tell you what question I had to ask a former vice president when I was a cub reporter in Iowa in just a minute here on CCO. A balmy four degrees, although it feels like 11 below in Woodbury, Minnesota, on CCO. Yep, I had to ask Al Gore if he smoked pot when he was in the Army. I'm 24 years old, asking the former vice president of the United States if he smoked a doobie. This was, the, this was a scandal in 2000. The headline said Al Gore's former drug use haunts him. How much things have changed in 20 years, that's for sure. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.